sure y'all come on in, take your shoes off, sit on down. Y'all listening to In the Corner, back by the woodpile. I'm Spun Counter Guy. Thanks for stopping by. Dave D. Duncan is this guy that I kept running into at record shops who seemed to know a lot about a lot. Writer by trade, native Nashvilleian by birth, arrogant deadbeat by nature, but mainly a diehard pop culturalist at heart. His passion lies with most anything America has entertained itself with for the past 150 years, whether trash or treasure, with a deep focus on music, film, pulp fiction, graphic arts, and other creaky old artifacts. This deed to the third power joined me back by the woodpile to talk about four of his favorite musicians that he wished the world hadn't forgotten so quickly. And the first of these is trombone player Jack Teagarden. So Jack Teagarden is one of those guys that was bigger than life. He was born in Vernon, Texas. He came from a musical family. His uh, mother played keyboards, his sister, his brother. So he started uh, down there in Texas playing uh, in silent movie houses, got with a guy named Peck Kelly and then started to build a reputation because he was a phenomenal trombone player. created a bunch of new positionings and tonings for the instrument simply by accident. The story goes that uh, when he was young, he picked up the trombone, you know, they have very set positions, and he couldn't really do the ones beyond the bell, which would be like five, six, and seven, right? Mm-hmm. So he just worked in the space between there and the bell and created a whole new vocabulary wow. for the trombone, particularly blues trombone. Uh-huh. It's strange it took a, a white guy from Texas to bring blues to the trombone, but T. Garden is totally recognizes the guy who did that. He had some contemporaries, a guy named Miff Mole, who was really well known, but Teagarden was always ahead of the pack, and he played with just about everybody who was anybody during the 20s and 30s. And he started recording pretty early, too, and more importantly, he started singing. And his vocal contributions are just as important as other people as well. Everyone from Billie Holiday to Louis Armstrong to Bing Crosby were influenced by Teagarden's kind of lazy, little bit behind the beat, but totally there. He made it seem so effortless. Yeah, he, he wasn't a polished singer, and I think that what yeah. what makes it more endearing. And uh, not that he was hitting bad notes; he, yeah. he just was almost like a folk singer, but play, singing yeah, jazz. Totally. Almost. Well, you can hear kind of the way he sings. You can kind of hear in his playing as well, oh, yeah. which is unique, which yeah. is kind of interesting it's, to see. Yeah, kind of a drunken play. <laughs> yeah, there is a kind of a, a real. Kind of sloshy, yeah, yeah sloshy, <laughs> liquid center, yeah. Uh, but uh, yeah, T. Garden's one of my heroes. Like I said, he at the height of his popularity, he was very inventive because once he got to New York, everybody wanted to play on his records. So I mean, he played on oh God, who knows how many labels with how many people. Everyone from Big Spiderbeck, Frankie Trumbauer. I mean, he was everywhere. But at the height of his popularity, from like 1933, I think to uh, 1938, uh, he was in Paul Whiteman's band. He was a sideman there, and Paul Whiteman was kind of like the white face of jazz right. back then, right? Yeah. All the the real hipsters who were in the other stuff said, well, he's just squaring this, that, and the other. Uh-huh. So they really lamented that Tea Garden was kind of locked up with uh-huh. him during this time. But, you know, a steady job and a steady paycheck right. is nothing to laugh and he, at. And Whiteman's not that bad. I mean, no, the, the, it's not. There was some, a yeah. whole lot more blander stuff in him. But, you know, they said these guys were a little constrained, a little restrained under yeah. Whiteman's tutelage. But uh-huh. the thing is, you know, I mean, it led to plenty of other stuff. So, you know, when you got a Whiteman's band in 38, 
you know, he started uh, hanging out and touring with, with the All-Stars, Louis Armstrong's All-Stars in 1941. They did a lot of stuff for a long time. Very kindred spirits. Brother Jackson, go beautiful. Yeah. Oh, rockin' chair's got me. Oh, rockin' chair got your father. Came by my side. You came by your side. Fetch me that Jensen. I ain't got no gin, father. Ten high. Something to keep in mind too is that T. Garden was one of those guys who just did not see race in music at all. He was one of those guys, he didn't care what color your skin, where your class, whatever. You play music, get together and blow. And anybody who played with T. Garden wanted to play with T. Garden. You know, there was a real openness about him to like, hey, I don't care who you are, what you are, let's right. just jam, let's just blow, you know. Now he was close with Louis Armstrong. Very close, he and, he and Louis were very close. And a lot of it's because they both had, you know, Southern upbringing, you know, Louis was from New Orleans and uh, Jack from Fern in Texas. But uh, apparently, you know, they, uh, they all like to hit the bottle. Of course, uh, Satchmo would like to, to hit the gauge a little more, I think. <laughs> but uh, Tea Garden's big passions were, of course, most of these guys were womanizers and they, the ones who didn't make money, it was usually because they had to pay alimony. Uh -huh. So Jack had three or four wives. He was a horrible businessman because when he had his own big band after the war and during the war, he lost phenomenal amounts of money, even though it was a great act. He just, what, that wasn't where his head was at. You right. know? But the things he was passionate about was obviously the music. You know, he loved the women, he loved his booze. I think he was a gin drinker. And he loved his toy train set. That was the thing he used to lug with him wherever on the road and set up in the hotel room was really? his toy train set. Yeah, yeah. Luckily, he's pretty well represented on film. He was in about a dozen Hollywood films and quite a few shorts called Soundies. Uh, so he's well represented. Uh, also, he's in one with Hoagie Carmichael. I mean, he's there. He actually was on a couple of TV shows, too. He, in these films, he always played music, but he usually played musician. I mean, he didn't play out of type. But I think he's even plays like a you know, a, a council member on an episode of The Andy Griffith Show that oh. late. So anyway, he was a guy that was really known, uh, you know, to be a, a cool cat. You know, he recorded up to the time of his death. He died like in January of 1964 in New Orleans. He wasn't quite 60 years old. But I think it's kind of telling that he died just a few weeks before the Beatles first gave their first mm -hmm. concerts in the U.S. It's kind of like the end of one era. I mean, he was a modern cat that I don't think yeah. would have changed with the times. I don't see him covering like bad, bad Leroy Brown. Or right. You know? but, he, but then you, again, <laughs> you could. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? There's something you found in it. So, so T-Guard is one of those guys to me that's just a gentle giant. Everybody loved him, but his contributions, kind of a guy you take for granted because he makes it look so easy. But his, right. his contributions, not only to jazz singing, but to the jazz and blues trombone are immeasurable. <laughs> What are some stories about Tea Garden like uh, that you know off the top of your head? Some well, one of the great ones was somebody kept uh, I forget Barrett Deems or whatever it is in uh, Louis's band. They were playing with the All Stars, and he kept nipping out of Jack's flask. He kept stealing his gin, and Jack caught him. So he kind of refilled it with his own fluid, if you know what I mean, and left it for <laughs> for the guy to drink. Whoa! <laughs> so that's that's the one that that I remember the most. Other than that, he's just known as a real easygoing guy, you know, who just you know. Kind of, you know, was not an overbearing cat. So that, he, one, that was kind of funny. And he was generally a nice guy. Oh, yeah. I don't, I've never heard any, you know, horror stories on Jack. You know, everybody has their bad moments. But no, he was, he was pretty much known as just an overall great, great, easygoing, you know, nice guy. Say it simple so I can understand. No fancy language, don't you talk too grand. Don't get nervous or you'll begin to stammer. Speak your peace and please forget your dicty grammar, say it's simple. 
So, and you mentioned his alcoholism. Did that kill him ultimately? Well, he ultimately died of pneumonia. But, you know, th these guys, you know, we're talking about, they were road warriors, man. They lived on the road, and those tours were poorly managed. and poor, They were poorly fed. They were poorly housed. They were poor, you know, they didn't really go in luxury. I mean, it was hard. So add that with, you know, you know, a drinking problem and probably not good nutrition. You know, he died, right. I think, right before he was 60 of uh, pneumonia. And it, it was real sudden. I mean, nobody expected it. But... Uh, I think he would have, you know, I mean, had he lived, he would have continued to be, keep doing the same things, you know. Give me some of your favorite tracks by him. Oh, yeah, I think there are a couple of songs that he absolutely owns. One is Stars Fell on Alabama. I can't forget the glamour Your eyes held a tender light And stars fell on Alabama Last night And another one I think he, he really just embodies is the song 100 Years From Today. Yeah, one of his last performances. I mean, he recorded, like, I think, for Verve up until like a year before his death. He did some of his best albums. The last two he did for, uh, for Verve, one called Misery in the Blues and another one called Think Well of Me, which uh, he covered uh, songs by this guy named uh, Willard Robeson who wrote a lot of uh, songs in the 20s. So, so he was really active up till the end. But one of the last recordings was a live thing just a couple of months before he died. And, and his version of 100 Years for Today on that one is just make the hair on the back of your neck stand up. Cling to me closer, dear, and say you'll be mine. Remember, darling, we won't see it shine. Oh, a hundred years from today, from today. Now I'm going to talk about another guy from, you know, these are all 20th century male musicians who had to reach beyond just their recordings, you know, because media was kind of nascent and was kind of changing. You know, uh, they started on the stage, they went to recordings, uh, then they went to Hollywood, then they wound up on radio, they wound up uh, on television. Their careers were that long. So next guy is a guy that people know the, the voice and they know the character, but they don't really know the guy. And that would be Cliff Edwards, who was... His other name was, he was known as Ukulele Ike. She likes vestibules, I never stood in a vestibule, but she likes vestibules, and that's my weakness now. Now, he's mainly known today, if people know him at all, for being the voice of Jiminy Cricket in Disney's Pinocchio, and of course, being the one responsible for singing Lee Harline's When You Wish Upon a Star, which along with Somewhere Over the Rainbow was one of the classic nostalgic songs of all time. When you wish upon a star Makes no difference who you are, anything your heart desires will come to you. So you know Cliff Edwards, he's an earwig in your brain, but you really don't know who he was. He was a guy born in Hannibal, Missouri, started as a piano player in the local dives there, but he found out that wherever he went, most of the pianos were in rotten shape and out of tune. So he grabbed a ukulele, which was... Oh. Kind of at that time, Hawaiian music was coming up in the late teens and early 20s. Uh, ukuleles were cheap, and he figured he could do better with that. So he almost single-handedly popularized the use of the ukulele <laughs> in the United States. Hence, he became known as Ukulele Ike. So he was quite the troubadour. He did, uh, I think, first versions. He started out on the stage, worked his way up, was in the Ziegfeld Follies, 
uh, did the I think the original versions of Singing in the Rain and Lady Be Good. I mean, Jada, a lot of really classic songs. I must win some winsomeness. Can't go on like this. I could blossom out, I know, with somebody just like you. He also made an incredible contribution to jazz scat singing. It's a real white type of skin, they call it Ethan. But Cliff Evers is the guy who kind of got that going. So he know? was the first. Yeah, scat. he was the first, yeah, yeah. Now how did that originate? That's a good question. I think he said one time he had a hiccup fit. Uh, okay. <laughs> he tried to sing it, it came out like that. Because people thought it was so interesting. Because I'd heard with Scat that it came about because somebody just forgot the lyrics. Oh, or uh, the one I've heard is that uh, uh, Louis Armstrong in the recording of, uh, I think, Jeepers Creepers, the sheet music fell off the, the stand while they were recording, <laughs> and he just started, you know, whopping yeah, yeah. around because yeah. he couldn't see the lyrics. <laughs> but the Ethan thing, and if you, if you hear a, a Cliff Evers recording, you know, it's more like, it's, it's not like a bebop-a-doo thing, it's more like an Ethan often kind of like what the guys used to do on Hee Haw, you know, the corn pone thing. Yeah. But, but it was really influential in, in getting that kind of non-lyric singing, you know, in, in, into jazz. So he was very popular, and he, uh, he had a big career. He led a big life. So from, uh, you know, Ziggy Follies in the stage, he wound up, he was in Hollywood in the early talkies, uh, usually singing. But he quickly became kind of like a second banana. Uh, he co-starred with Buster Keaton in several of the early MGM soundies, I mean, talkies, rather. He was in some classic films. He was in His Girl Friday in addition to voicing Jiminy Cricket and Pinocchio. So he had some really landmark credits. So he became known later but uh, as the voice in his later years. But he was also uh, a sidekick in a, a bunch of Tim Holt westerns for RKO in the 40s. So but he stayed working. I mean, he was... Do you think he resented being known as Jiminy Cricket? You know, it was a mixed blessing for him because after a certain point, they were the only gigs he could get was working with Disney, you know, as he aged out. But um, that was 1940 Pinocchio, and so he lived another 30 years past that. But by the time you got to the 50s, I mean, Cliff was a large liver. And, uh, I mean, he loved the women, he loved to gamble, he loved to drink. Uh, <laughs> so he was always broke, and apparently, you know, in his cups, as they say, he was not a nice guy. Uh -huh. So, uh, but, you know, here's a guy that, you know, like I said, started out, you know, little dives, wound up on Broadway stage, then wound up in Hollywood, then wound up on the radio, he had his own show, and then wound up in television as well as early shows. So he kind of covered the gamut, you know. But, you know, by the time he died in 1974, things were not really looking well for him. He was in an old old actor's home. The only gigs he could get was from hanging out at Disney, just begging for voice work. Gee, I wish we'd have brought Ayuk's along. Yeah, we could have had a Uke jam session. Well, isn't it strange now? I just happened to send six of them over here, and they're in that grip, so all of you get one, huh? Okay. More people today know him for the voice talent than right. in any image of him. But he right. was a really competent actor as well. I think he was always just playing Cliff Edwards. Uh -huh. But still, it was a great character. It was, it was a great character. So, so his end is kind of uh, ignominious. I mean, uh, so he died in 71. Apparently, he had alienated so many people throughout his life that his body went unclaimed, like at, at, at a morgue or something. And somebody at Disney found out about it. So they contacted the uh, actors union. They got the money to reclaim his body and Disney actually paid for his headstone. So that's kind of a, a sad end, but, yeah. but the thing is, you know, uh, Flame is feeding and Vaudeville is dead, you know, and Cliff Edwards didn't feel so good himself, you know right. what I'm saying? <laughs> uh, so when you look at the kind of life he led, mm -hmm. then, you know, it's hard, yeah. it's hard to feel sad. And the thing knows he, he lives on. Uh, Disney still uses 
the When You Wish Upon a Star for the opening of almost all their videos. So he's still in people's consciousness today. Maybe not his full scope and breadth of his it's, career. It's, and it's one of those songs that give you chills. Oh, yes, like it still does. Yeah. yeah. I, I give a lot of credit to him and also give a lot of credit to the, the guy that wrote it, Lee Harlan, mm -hmm. who a lot of people don't know today was an incredible uh, songwriter and also did a lot of soundtracks in Hollywood. As Ukulele Ike, like, what's a song that stands out? Well, he did a lot of kind of risque songs as well, but one called Paddling Madeline Home was a big hit for him. <laughs> I'm paddling Madeline home. Gee, when I'm paddling Madeline home, first I drift with the tide, then pull for the shore. I hug her and kiss her, then paddle some more. He did some risque ones. It was like, I'm giving it to Mary with love. You know, these things that were pretty, pretty out <laughs> the there for the time. Yeah. Like Jack and Jill. We'll both get a thrill when I give it to Mary with love. The Singing in the Rain probably is the, the song that he is known the most for. I think he introduced in Broadway Melody of 1929 or, or whatever it is. So that would be a landmark song. I'm singing in the rain, just singing in the rain. What a glorious feeling, I'm happy again. I'm laughing at clouds so dark up above. The sun's in my heart and I'm ready for love. These guys I'm talking about were all about having fun. And you can tell it in their performances, right. you can tell it in, the, in their recordings. I mean, they go up to a different notch, you know, and you can tell they're enjoying what they're doing. Right. I can really say I don't see that a lot in a lot of modern entertainment, you know, where anybody has the sheer joy right. of just performing. I, I think that was before uh, maybe the America at Large was mm -hmm. honest about the yeah. uh, the downside of success. Right, yeah, know? and but, also you, you keep in mind these, you know, Cliff Edwards, just like Jack Teagar before, these are not threatening personages. Mm -hmm. These are easygoing guys. These are like somebody's uncles or somebody's, right. you know what I'm saying? Right. So they're not threatening. You know, I mean, even though Big T was a big guy, you know, but uh, Cliff Edwards is a little short guy, kind of elfin looking, like you know, kind of like, like a, a frog. Yeah, yeah, like a frog is here. Yeah. <laughs> I, I think it's a shame that his music is pretty well overlooked today because it's it's very deep. And he recorded for a good long time, three three decades or more. Mm -hmm. And so any kind, any kind of Cliff Edwards, not to be confused, there is a Canadian singer songwriter named Cliff Edwards. So. If you're hearing something really wimpy, folky from the 70s, that is not the ukulele I <laughs> Cliff Edwards. Hey, just wanted to take a quick deviation from my conversation with Dave to say that if you dig the In the Corner Back by the Woodpile podcast and would like to hear it come out more frequently, perhaps, or maybe you just found a large trunk of money and salacious photographs in your late Auntie Eunice's attic and wanted to unload them, you're welcome to send any amount of cash our way, which helps with gas money and road trip jerky for me to go around recording these cool people. Keep the photos, though. No offense, but I've seen your Auntie Eunice fully clothed, and, well, that was plenty. Yeah, so you can go do this donate thing by sending us some green by way of PayPal using the email spuncounterguy at hotmail.com or go to our page at Podbean and click on the Become a Patron button. If you do either, we'll say nice things about you and maybe take back what we said about your wayward aunt or Eunice, the visual eunuch maker, as we used to call her. Okay, now back to the program. Talk about a guy that knew to have some fun. That would be Louis Jordan, band leader, a good time guy, rhythm and blues icon, known as the king of the jukebox. But to me, Louis Jordan will always represent the link between rhythm and blues and rock and roll. It takes a lot of setting, getting chicks to hatch. Oh, there ain't nobody here but us chickens. There ain't nobody here at all. He's another guy that in his lifetime, I mean, he hit the heights, but the last couple decades of his life, he kind of went unappreciated. But since his death, 
has become more and more appreciated on the level that he was as a creative genius. So I'll, I'll say something from the beginning to warn people. If they say, hey, I'm, I'm going to check out Louis Jordan, yeah. some mistakes can be made because uh, I remember, I guess, lucked out and got the good stuff. Right. And a friend of mine hey, went to buy some Louis Jordan and said, man, this stuff is bland as all get out. And yeah. I went and looked at it, and I guess it, he had re-recorded a lot right. of his hits. This is what happened. See, okay. he was the king of R&B, right? So his heyday... For 10 years, he had a decade from 1942 uh, to 1951 where he was literally known as the king of the jukebox. Yeah. He had rhythm and blues hits yeah. one after the other. But when rock and roll came along, even though what he was doing to me is the pattern for early rock and roll, just substitute guitars for saxophone, the rock and roll, you know, pretty much all those old guys, unless you were Sinatra or somebody who was a real stylist, didn't really survive rock and roll. A lot of country performers, a lot of people didn't survive. So these re-recordings you're talking about were attempts by later record companies to tap into that mm -hmm. and they are not really good yeah. if you compare it to the originals if oh, that's yeah. all you heard you think what's the deal about yeah so uh so he recorded for decca records you know like the height of his career i think from 1939 to like 1950 and that is an impressive body of work uh that's where all the hits come from and they can we can go on forever from caledonia saturday night fish fry uh choo 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 boogie mm -hmm. is you is you is you my baby I'm going to move to the outskirts of town. Yeah. This chick's too young to fry. I mean, every one of them is a classic in its own right. My favorite, by far, is the green grass grows. Green grass grows all around. Grows all around yeah, it's a little annoying. On that bird, and on that bird, there was some feathers. There was some feathers. Prettiest little feathers. Little feathers. That you ever did see. That you ever did see. Now the feathers on the bird, and the bird, and the egg, and the egg, and the nest, and the nest on the limb, and the limb. But Lou was those guys. Like I said, he was not a threatening figure. He was. The, kind of like Fats Waller, he was a guy that was just all about fun and having fun. And he was a colossal influence on the rock and rollers that came in his wake. Everyone from James Brown to Chuck Berry to Little Richard repeatedly pointed to Louis Jordan as their idea. Just in his showmanship, in his sense of having fun, his entertaining the audience, and leaving them with something, you know, a little, something that's going to stick in their heads. You know, you want to see him again. So he was a guy, like I said, who experienced great success. He also had a, um, a Hollywood presence as well, but in a little more significant way. Uh, he and the band, his Timpany Five, which at time ranged in members from seven to eight. They, I don't think they were actually ever a five. Uh, a little creative license there. Did do some guest spots in some high-profile Hollywood films. What's more important are the three films that he made and starred in in 1947 and 1940, I think 47, 48. There were three of them. Uh, one's called Beware. Uh, the other one's called Reap, Petite, and Gone. One of those two, I forget, has the video of him singing Green Grass Grows all around uh -huh. in there. But my favorite of all, and a classic in its own right, is Lookout Sister from 1947. You know, there really should be a place for those kids to go. There's millions of kids just like them. Need to get out in the sunshine, learn how to ride and shoot. As far as I know, it's still the only all-black cast, dream-inspired western that's ever been made. Okay. So in a letter to me dated... Uh, back in 1994 in reference to an earlier version of an article I had written that appeared in the Louis Jordan fan club thing. Uh, the one and only Burl Adams is kind enough to set this record straight about where the money came from. So he says, this is in Burl's own words, I continue to be a hero worshiper of the inimitable Louis Jordan. My good fortune was that we had a close personal relationship for many years. In regard to Lookout Sister, I wish I'd cut that chase scene. Louis was not a comfortable cowboy. <laughs> We compensated uh, by recording 11 songs, you know, and including them in the script. It should be noted that I financed Caldonia and Astor Pictures, uh, headed by a jolly Italian gentleman by the name of R.M. Savini. He financed the other three pictures, but Burl Adams says, I also produced Caldonia and Lookout Sister, 
He said, thanks for keeping the Louis Jordan name alive and kicking his uh, name and contribution to the music of the 1940s should be preserved. Oh, that's great. So, yeah. That's kind of interesting itself because most of the, the history books you have, if you look at books like A Separate Cinnamon, these things that focus on black things, mm. really don't ever bring up the possibility that anyone other than, than African Americans were involved in these films. Mm -hmm. And Lookout Sister is a, a really memorable film. Like I said, he, he talked about cutting the, the chase sequence. It really is kind of surreal. It just goes on and on and on and on. But uh, it works. You know, it works for what it is. But uh, I can see how uh, uh, Louis was not a very comfortable cowboy. <laughs> and tell that beauty operator to wash and iron your mouth. Then come on back home, because I'm going to give you a whipping. You're going to put me the way I like it. Shut up, woman. I first found out about Louis Jordan, just accidentally, just had heard, I think, Choo 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 Boogie or something, said, I want to find out more about this guy. And, of course, in the days before the Internet, you know, you had to do all this stuff through record-collecting magazines and a lot of through the, the post office. You know, you had to wait a lot to find out things. Somehow I got connected up with in the 1980s with this fellow who was uh, worked on the music at The Tonight Show when Johnny Carson was still there. He was a diehard Louis Jordan fan. Uh, I was able to find him a pretty rare single on Bray Charles' label Tangerine from like the mid-60s that he didn't have. And this guy shared so much information with me, uh, color copies of uh, some of the lobby cards and things that were used in the Louis Jordan films, uh, a lot of just memorabilia, just information that just wasn't available, mm -hmm. as well as at that time getting copies of those films to see those films. This goes to show that, you know, uh, kindred spirits fan flames, right. they go a long way. Walking with my baby, she got red big feet, she long, lean, and lank, and ain't had nothing to eat, but she's my baby, and I love her just the same. So Louis more than had his day in the sun, but like I said, rock and roll was really hard on these guys. And so, uh, so after he left DECA, you know, in 1950, uh, he did some really great recordings for Aladdin right after that that are basically of the same level as he did with Decca. But then as he got closer to the rock and roll era and all that happened, then they wanted him to re-record his songs and with the rock and roll background, and they don't play the same. And also, don't confuse him with the French actor Louis Jordan if you're online looking for something because it's spelt the same way. And if all of a sudden you're getting results about a white French dude, then you've gotten a disambiguation to tell them apart. But this is kind of controversial. A lot of people today, when you talk about rock and roll, they always want to give Sam Phillips, you know, of Sun Records, you know, there's a, a famous book now, now by Peter Garana called The Man Who Invented Rock and Roll. Well, the beginning of rock and roll is always going to be up for discussion. Right. There's just as so much argument, I think, that could be made for a guy that ran Essex Records, I think out of Philadelphia, who first recorded Bill Haley. There's a Louis Jordan connection here, bear with me. So Rock This Joint, you know, was produced out of Philadelphia. But the guy knew that Haley had a sound he wanted to tap into. So Haley then moved to DECA with producer Milt Gabler, and you have Rock Around the Clock, which is kind of the big bang of this. Well, most of Louis Jordan's most successful recordings were done at DECA with Milt Gabler. So don't think there's not a connection here, sure. you know, as far as that. Yeah. So. Died in um, 1975. He'd pretty much been forgotten by that time. He had made some statements that uh, you know he was kind of bitter at the end about that uh, rock and roll was just black music taken over by white guys and things like that. But you know uh, his contribution is so great. And then after his death, things started to really build. I mean, people knew Louis Jordan. They knew the songs were fun. But with the rise of that swingers culture in the 90s, and then of course this Broadway show they did called Five Guys Named Mo, which is a review of some of the best of the Timothy Five's hits. This came back into vogue. These these Louis Jordan songs all of a sudden were back everywhere again. There's something about whenever I hear a Louis Jordan song, no matter how bad I feel, even even with the blues songs he does, 
I feel better afterwards. People who really remain in the public consciousness as a rule are tapping into what's going on at the time. And so during the war times, he did wartime songs about ration blues and GI job. So he was a guy that was singing songs that weren't above the people. And some of my favorite Louis Jordan songs are really stupid. There's this one called Coleslaw, which I love, which is like, you know, Coleslaw, it'll have your jaws going like a crosscut saw. It ain't nothing but some cabbage raw, you know. But these songs are fun. I think that may have been a Slim Galliard song, but Louis Jordan could take any of these songs that you would say were formulaic today, but really just are peppy or up and are just stupid. They're going to make you smile just because of the way the words are done or to his delivery. So he, uh, he's one of those guys that, you know, if you're feeling a little low, you can always put on some Louis Jordan. And you're going to feel better. And the old folks say I won't live long, but I'll die happy. I'm a good time lover living undercover. I'm a real low raider and an aggravator. And I know I won't always be strong, but I'll die yeah, I want to talk about this guy's a little bit modern. He's still a 20th century guy. Uh, another guy that people may know the songs, but they don't know the man. And that would be uh, Percy Mayfield, uh, no relation to Curtis. They called him the Poet Laureate of the Blues. Percy was a real interesting cat who came from Louisiana. I think he was born in uh, Minden, Louisiana. And he started kind of doing jump blues stuff out in L.A. in the late 40s and early 50s for... Oh, I think labels like Guilt Tone and I mean, really small labels, but he hit his stride when he signed with Art Roop's Specialty Records. And we know uh, Specialty from little, you know, later on, Little Richard, a whole bunch of blues guys and stuff. So he started to have some hits, but he was just as incredible a songwriter as he was a singer and performer. So the songs by Percy Mayfield that you probably heard someone else sing, of course, is Please Send Me Someone to Love, which is an incredible song. Heaven, please send to all mankind understanding and a peace in mind but if it's not asking too much please send me someone to love he wrote strange things happening so he had a lot of hits with these songs in the 50s he kind of got curtailed early on he was a good-looking you know uh, african-american great songwriter great performer he was in a horrific car accident in 1952. He was riding in a chauffeur-driven limousine, I think, between Los Angeles and Las Vegas. The driver ran into the back of a parked truck. He was pronounced dead at the scene. It was that awful. It literally cleaved his skull in twain, disfigured him for the rest of his life. So he was pronounced dead at the scene, but you know he made a comeback, and it took him like two years to recover. But obviously his performing career was over because he was disfigured. Uh, and I imagine, you know, not only not you know his source of income and everything without being able to perform but after about two years you know he started writing again and you got to give props to brother ray charles ray knew him knew what a great writer he was so he kind of put him not on a staff but this record label that ray charles was running called tangerine records which coincidentally louis jordan did some later recordings for and he kept percy writing songs that and brother ray ended up covering you know, almost 15 of them the most important of course outside of uh Please give me something to love is Hit the Road Jack. Percy Mayfield wrote Hit the Road Jack. Hit the Road Jack and don't come back no more. No more, no more, no more. Hit the Road Jack and don't come back no more. Now what you say? Hit the road so he also kept Percy going and writing these songs. He gave him a recording deal so he was able to you know, kind of reestablish that in the early 60s. They, he, they just did it without his face on the cover? Yeah, yeah, basically. Or so far away you couldn't see him. <laughs> You know what I'm saying? That's there's this one. There's yeah. one called My Jug and I, the first tangerine, where he's like, 
dressed up like some country bumpkin, you know, far away by a lake with like the hat pulled down over his head. So, no, they didn't focus on his disability if they focused on him at all. But uh, he's still an incredible, I mean, just an incredible songwriting, singing talent. So he recorded, you know, for Tangerine a couple of records. Uh, Then, you know, he did a a one-off in the mid-60s for Brunswick, a great album called Walking on a Tightrope. He did some uh, albums for RCA in the uh, early 70s. And they just, you know, kind of disappeared into obscurity. Never really had any chart hits after that time, but he kept going and kept writing and uh, just an amazing spirit for talent. But in the early 80s, a fellow named Mark Naftalin, who was a Bay Area musician who played with a lot of uh, Butterfield Blues, you know, a bunch of, bunch of people over the years, had found out that Percy was living in the area, kind of sought him up. So he kind of had this late career resurgence from the early 80s to where uh, Mark Naftalin led a band that made some great recordings. They made an excellent 30-minute documentary called Percy Mayfield, Port Lord of the Blues. It's really edifying. Mm-hmm. He has a real telling thing in it where, you know, I mean, he's literally, his skull has, I mean. It's still there. Yeah, oh gosh, yeah, it never healed. And he says, well, I know I'm a star because I don't look like nobody else. <laughs> so this is one cool cat. If you uh-huh. saw, saw him here, he's another guy, kind of like Tea Garden, who's just always a little slightly behind the beat, makes it look so effortless, but such an incredible songwriter. Songs that people don't know, but... To me, you're great. He once said that I'm a poet and my message is love. What more can you say? Yeah. But some of my favorite titles, he did this really great song called The River's Invitation, which is basically about the river's calling to come kill himself because his, his girlfriend's left him. I spoke to the river And the river spoke back to me One that I love, one of the best titles of all, is called Ha Ha in the Daytime but Boo Hoo All Night Long. All the stories that I've told you was about me. I think it's a testament to a spirit that this guy could be derailed so deeply and so almost would seem permanently, and yet he was able to come back and have a career and continue to write and contribute and perform, you know, right up until he died. Did he ever talk about what he was in recovery and like did he yeah, he never really went into a lot of detail but clearly from those that knew him around it was a real dark time you know when you're healing from you know having your head split in two i mean not only you lose your professional things you know you've forever changed inside and outside uh so it has to inform it has to change your music too but it's interesting you can't really tell a change in the music from before the accident and after the accident because he was still touching on you know really deep blues things that never end, you know, my woman, my job, bad living conditions, <laughs> bad whiskey, you know, uh, those things don't really change. He's one of these guys, like three of my other favorite musical underdog heroes, which would be Alex Chilton, Gene Clark, and Del Shannon were woefully under-recorded in their lifetimes. They went long periods of time when they just weren't recorded. And so Percy Mayfield's one of those guys that was really woefully under-recorded, you know, by himself. So, I mean, there's enough of them because he recorded for three decades, but compared to, to what it should have been, you know, there should have been a lot more. But And there's a segment in the documentary where he's uh, uh, in, his, in his apartment and he's, he's singing Hit the Road Jack, but he's walking around the apartment while he's mixing himself a drink. He don't miss a beat. You know what I'm saying? You can tell this is a guy that just knew how to find the groove and do it. You know, and he's, he's just so on it, you know. Hey, I just want to take the time now to thank David D. Duncan for coming back by the woodpile. And if you'd like to send him a message or ask him a question, uh, he knows quite a bit. And you can do that by emailing him at duncanldd3 at earthlink.net.
In the Corner, Back by the Woodpile podcast is produced by a closet, a pocket, and a suitcase. You can email us at spuncounterguy at hotmail.com. You can follow us on Twitter at spuncounterguy. Be sure to download the new Podbean app to hear this podcast and others on your tablet and smartphone. And we are now on iTunes. Just do a search for Back by the Woodpile on the iTunes store and we should pop up. And a special thanks to thebrofisticate.com. So I still a ha ha in the daytime. Oh, but I do you all.